This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 306th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new burrowing dinosaur. Ooh. Yeah. We also have dinosaur of the day, Zephyrosaurus. And for a fun fact, I'm going to go into more burrowing dinosaurs, including some birds. I didn't talk about last week when I was talking about things burrowing, but there are a bunch of birds that burrow, it turns out. Because why not? Yeah. Because birds do everything. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast running and the bits streaming. And this week, we'd like to thank Wyatt, Stego Steve, Dino Bo, Rhino Source, the Georges family, Remy Rodriguez, Kyle, Ellen, Michael, and Kelly. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. And we're looking forward to our next watch party with everybody next week. Yep. And we'll also be doing a bunch of SVP coverage very soon. And we're going to do some like daily, nightly, early morning-y, depending on what time zone you're in, recaps of each day's events. So if you want to get in on those, then join our Patreon. Yep. And that's patreon.com slash I know Dino. Jumping into the news up first, we have our new burrowing dinosaur. This one was published in Pure J and written by Yuching Yang and others. And because it's in Pure J, that means it's open access. But unfortunately for me, that means it's also incredibly long form <laughs> and kind of hard to get through. But you don't have to deal with that because I did it for you. So <laughs> this new burrowing dinosaur is from China. Its full name is Changmiania liaoningensis. Seeing that written just really quick for anyone who might be a community fan, when I saw it, I thought, oh, Changmania. <laughs> it does. It's only like one extra eye away from Changmania. That's really funny. I didn't notice that. Yep. Anyway, back to the burrowing dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Changmiania is from Changmian, which is Mandarin for eternal sleep, which is a really cool name for a dinosaur. Yeah. And it's a good name for really any fossilized animal because they are eternally sleeping, especially in this case, where it looks like it might have been asleep when it was fossilized, or at least shortly before it was fossilized. Then Liaoningensis, you might be able to guess, is because it was found in the Liaoning province, much like many dinosaurs in China. So it's not a place name Saurus, place name Ensis, it's just place name Ensis. <laughs> and a description of what it looked like. Yes. And we usually don't use the species name, for so really the genus name is the moneymaker when it comes to dinosaurs. And I should point out, even though it's probably best pronounced Changmiania or Changmiania, depending on which part you Latinize versus leave Chinese, 
I'm probably going to say Changmiania because I'm from Wisconsin again, and that just happens. So <laughs> Changmiania is from the Ixian Formation, which in this case makes it 123 million years old, and that's pretty early in the Cretaceous. So it's one of the earlier dinosaurs from the Cretaceous of China. And it's known from two nearly complete and articulated skeletons, which is awesome. That is. A lot of times these dinosaurs we're naming are known from just a handful of bones, rarely articulated. And it's even better that we have two individuals because then a lot of the details about what the dinosaur looks like, you can be more confident aren't from just individual variation because you've got two samples to go from. So if one of the bones is a little bit bent in an unusual way and the other one's how you would expect it, you're not going to say, oh, this dinosaur is special because it has this bend in the bone. You look at the two and you say, oh, that bend is probably just variation because it got squished a little during fossilization or whatever. So it's really cool that we have two to go from. A couple of clues that go along with their fantastic preservation is that they're both in really good shape in three-dimensional preservation. They're not smashed at all. And there aren't any signs of predation or weathering, which means it's likely that they were buried very quickly after dying or maybe even before dying so that none of these effects of the environment impacted them. The authors interpret this incredible preservation as them being buried in their own burrows, which is most of the evidence for them being burrowing dinosaurs. In total, they found two individuals, like I mentioned, the holotype, because you have to pick one of them to be the real holotype, the official first dinosaur with that name. The one that you compare all the other fossils to. Yes, of any other animal and any other dinosaur to make sure that it is unique and whatever kind of comparisons you want to make between bones. In this case, the holotype is 117 centimeters or three feet, 10 inches long. Oh. Yeah, pretty small. It's kind of on the same ballpark as Erictodromius or a lot of these other small ornithopods. Do we know if it's an adult? We do not, unfortunately. They didn't do histology, so they didn't cut any of the bones to check for lags and see how old it was. And I didn't see anything specifically calling out whether it was a juvenile or an adult. Got it. They also didn't mention any eggshells, either that these individuals might have come out of or that they may have been protecting when they died. So yeah, we, there's not a lot of clues about the age of the dinosaur. So to your point, they could have gotten bigger. This isn't the maximum size that we expect the animal to ever achieve. Between the two individuals, one of them is curled up in a very cute sleeping-like posture, just like one of the Erictodromius that we found. And it's sort of if you imagine just like any kind of, like a dog, how a dog curls up when it sleeps, mm -hmm. but if a dog had a really long stiff tail sticking out of one spot, <laughs> that's exactly what it looks like. And that's the one that they picked for the holotype. The other one, to me, it looks much more lizardy in the way that it was fossilized. So it's kind of like in the best way I can describe it is if you're playing that game leapfrog where you squat down on all fours and then someone jumps over you. Mm -hmm. If you were squatting down on all fours like that and then you pressed yourself as far as you could into the ground so that you're, I think there's a yoga pose like this where you're kind of like bending your knees and hips as much as possible. So you're kind of flat on the ground, but with your legs and arms underneath you. Sabrina's practicing yoga while we figure out the name of this pose. I think it's the child's pose. I think you're right. But if you took the child's pose and then also folded your arms underneath yourself too, mm. along with your legs. I don't know if there's a name for that. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> so one of the dinosaurs is basically in that 
child's pose slash smashed leapfrog pose and then obviously it also has the tail sticking out behind it so this is in more of like a sprawled position basically what a gecko or lizard looks like when it's on the ground but this one has much longer limbs so they have to be all folded up underneath it both of the finds have gastroliths which is pretty cool and i'm sure in the future they'll get in there and try to see if there's any other gut contents nice <laughs> yeah because it's always good to know what these guys ate and in terms of things we can see in the skull because both of them have really well preserved skull is the premaxilla in other words the very front of the snout has longer and smooth teeth i guess a little bit more spear-like or something than some other teeth and then the maxilla, which are the teeth farther back in the skull, have serrations. So they are heterodonts, not heterodontosaurs, but heterodonts. And that means that they were probably eating some different things because if you're eating the same thing all the time, a lot of times you have similar teeth throughout the mouth. Unfortunately, we don't have very much information about the site that they came from. They were collected and prepared by local farmers, which is pretty common in China. And that means that we can't look for more signs of a burrow like we can with and have found with Erictodromius, because if you can find a sort of naturally infilled cast of a burrow, that's really the, the gold standard ichnofossil type evidence for a burrowing animal, especially if the animal's inside that ichnofossil cast. Mm -hmm. But these were already dug up and prepared and then handed off to paleontologists later, so we can't look for these signs. I don't even think they know exactly where they're from. They just said that it was near a city and it might be intentionally vague because these farmers might be making a lot of money off of the dinosaur. So they don't want to give away exactly where they came from. I'm not sure. As is often the case, the people who were investigating the fossil were worried that it might be a forgery because especially when fossils look like they're in fantastic shape, sometimes there's a little bit of fudging that goes on either sticking different fossils together or otherwise just completely faking bones but they put it in an x-ray and they didn't see anything suspicious so they think that they're both genuine fossils unfortunately some of the bones were damaged and or glued incorrectly in the preparation process which is always just a potential downside when you have people who aren't experts working with fossils but on the other hand we might not have ever seen these in the first place if the people weren't interested in finding them and digging them out and then donating or selling them. So like I mentioned before, they believe that these two dinosaurs were in a burrow when they were fossilized. And their preferred theory is that there were two individuals resting in a burrow together and then the burrow collapsed on them and preserved them just perfectly. So it would have been a pretty instantaneous probably death and then preservation. It's a good way to go. Yeah, I think so. Compared to a lot of the <laughs> indications we see on dinosaur bones. Mm -hmm. It's nice not to get chewed on, especially. An alternative, though, is that there was a mudslide from a nearby volcano that filled in the burrow and then preserved them that way. And the authors propose a third option, which is, quote, we can alternatively imagine that the Changmianya specimens dug their burrow in unstable reworked volcanic material just after the debris flow, end quote. So I guess there's some indication that there was mudslide material. You can kind of see that in the little bit of rock that we have preserved around them. And then the question is, how did that end up around them? Did they burrow into it and then it collapsed? Or did it fill in behind them? One or the other is probably the most likely explanation. 
but they do note that it's all speculation and that we really can't be sure of what happened to them. Overall, Changmianya looks a lot like Jeholosaurus, but it has some more basal features. And Jeholosaurus is from approximately the same time and place, so that was one of the more important ones to compare to. Changmianya has a few adaptations that are presumed to be helpful for burrowing animals. The one that seems the most obvious to me is that it has a shorter neck with just six vertebrae, which is less than some of its relatives, and some of the bones are fused in between the hips and things that might have been useful for digging. On the other hand, it has some features that you wouldn't expect to see if Changmianya was spending most of its time underground. Its hind limbs are about twice as long as its forelimbs, which definitely means it was bipedal. It was probably a quick runner, or also known as cursorial, and that's partly based on the fact that its legs are so much longer than its arms, but also the ratio of the length of its femur to its tibia. The authors also say, quote, moreover, the forelimb and skull modifications remain rather modest so that Changmianya was obviously not a true subterranean animal, but more likely a facultative digger, as also suggested for Arictodromius, end quote. So Arictodromius too has these longer legs, its skull doesn't look like a lot of other subterranean animals, I guess, and therefore we think that it might have slept underground, but probably spent a lot of its waking time outside running around on the landscape. Interestingly, they mention three other dinosaurs besides Arictodromius that might have been burrowers. They include Zephyrosaurus, Orodromius, and Koreanosaurus. What timing to go with our dinosaur of the day. <laughs> yeah, what do you know? All of these dinosaurs are basal ornithopods in the group Orodrominae, but for some reason they left out Alberta Dromaeus and Ueosaurus, which are also often included in that group. I'm not sure why they called out three of the members and said... These are also likely diggers because they're in the same group, but who knows? They probably have their reasons. <laughs> they just didn't elaborate on it. Their phylogeny put Changmianya as a basal ornithopod, but not within Orodrominae, which I thought was kind of weird since they were like, all these ones in Orodrominae are burrowers, and then Changmianya wasn't in it. But the strangest thing about their phylogeny is they left out Arictodromius, which is one of the best known burrowers. We have a lot of evidence for it. We have a few individuals to work from, but they said they were waiting to get some more details. I think they wanted some measurements from some other one in order to include it. So I think they also think it's likely to change when Arictodromius gets put in. Maybe it'll make a larger group with all of these burrowers. And lastly, I just wanted to give credit to Wiser, who pointed out on Discord that I could update my rabbit hole analogy from Arictodromius burrow to Changmianya hole, hmm. but I, I'm kind of leaning towards Zephyrosaurus because that one's more fun to say than either <laughs> of the other two, <laughs> but we don't have as good of evidence. We still have the best evidence by far for Arictodromius burrowing than any of these others. So if I'm doing a dinosaur analogy, I should probably stick with Arictodromius. It is the one we've been saying the longest. Yeah. Maybe we could simplify down the dinosaur burrow or something. There you go. Good point. Our other peer review article that I'm going to talk about was published in Cretaceous Research by Thomas Bevor and others. And in it, they describe a new dig site that adds to the evidence that Spinosaurus spent a lot of time in the water. Oh, I wonder if this is one of the papers Nizar was telling us about. He is included as a co-author on it, but it's not really about 
Spinosaurus material. So I don't think it's one of the ones he was alluding to. It's more about an ecosystem. So it's mm. one of those ecosystem review type papers. It's actually really fascinating because it's in Southeast Morocco, which means it's near the proposed Spinosaurus neotype and where a lot of Spinosaurus material has been found in the past. I should say isn't really that much, but it's a lot for Spinosaurus. It's still part of the ChemChem group as well. So it's all consistent with that other stuff we've been looking at and talking about with Spinosaurus in Africa. There are two different sites within the area that they cover in the paper. And the most important thing about these sites is that they're completely packed with sawfish teeth and Spinosaurus teeth. Interesting. Yeah, there's hundreds each of sawfish and Spinosaurus teeth in these sites. And by comparison, there's only a few dozen total teeth from terrestrial animals. So there's a few Carcharodontosaurus, a Belosauroid, unidentified theropod, and a couple of sauropod teeth in the mix. But even if you add up all of those teeth, it's still an order of magnitude less than just Spinosaurus teeth. So it really looks like there were a lot of Spinosaurus and a lot of sawfish going on here, and then not a whole lot else in the mix. So more evidence in the solution to Stromer's riddle. Yes, that Spinosaurus didn't have to compete directly with these other large predators because it was just eating fish all the time. There were a few other teeth in the area, including crocodilian teeth, and they also found 50 pieces of turtle shell, 40 plus shark fin spines, and a few pterosaur bones. So it is a full-fledged assemblage of weird stuff. But pterosaurs can show up anywhere. They can and do. <laughs> yeah, even in the stomach of a Spinosaurid. Not Spinosaurus, different one. Yeah, it's true. Because we think pterosaurs might have eaten fish too. So maybe you've got this thing where pterosaur was trying to eat a fish and a Spinosaurus was trying to eat a fish. And then <laughs> Spinosaurus is like, while I'm here, I might as well just snatch this pterosaur. Purely speculative. But yeah, in general, dinosaurs are very opportunistic. Yeah. And predators in general aren't going to pass up an easy meal. Spinosaurus definitely wasn't evolved for tracking down pterosaurs, but if there's it one happen to be, yeah, why not? <laughs> Another important detail about the area is it's preserved in what seems to be a marine sediment. Like I said, there's some shark bones in there, lots of crocodile pieces. And like I said, the Spinosaurus teeth outnumber every other dinosaur tooth combined by a huge margin, which means that it was probably spending a lot more time in this marine sediment than the other dinosaurs. So the idea that Spinosaurus might have just occasionally eaten fish as like an opportunistic thing, or it was on the land a bunch of times, but it also went in the water, might make some sense. But really, that seems more the case for these other animals like Carcharodontosaurus or the Abelosauroid, where you just see one or two teeth. Like, yeah, sure, it smelled a fish and it went over and ate it, but it wasn't spending a bunch of time in there because there were over 400 teeth from Spinosaurus found there, which is many, many skulls worth of teeth. And like we talk about, dinosaurs lose their teeth continually and replace them. For something like a Spinosaurus, it's on the order of months to years that it would take to grow and replace a tooth. So that's many, many years worth of shedding teeth in the environment. So it's just one more piece to the puzzle that it looks like Spinosaurus was spending a lot of time in the marine environment, as well as being well adapted to eat fish and wade into water and swim with its tail in water. <laughs> Basically, every piece of evidence we have about what kind of environment Spinosaurus spent its time in points to water. 
In other news, there's a really nice interview about paleontologist Jingmei O'Connor and her work in massive science. And the news from that piece is that she is moving from China, where she spent the last decade researching Chinese fossils, a lot of the fossils that came out of the Jehol biota. And now she's going to be the Associate Curator of Fossil Reptiles at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Big move, but that's cool. Yeah, congratulations. In Lyme Regis, there's a couple of campaigns going on to raise money for Marianning's statue. So one artist, Daryl Wakelam, is heading up Marianning Rocks and inviting local school kids to create artwork on how they think the statue should look, and then their designs will help shape what the actual statue looks like. So Daryl's going to choose a finalist from each school in the area and work with the sculptor Denise Dutton, who's then going to use the designs to design the statue. And then the winners of each school will help unveil it. And then in another campaign, the band Dark Sacred Night has released their song about Marianning called The Perfect <laughs> Storm. And Dave Rowley from the band said that he and his family do a lot of fossil hunting, and he spent his time in lockdown during the pandemic reading up on Mary's life. So he chose the name of The Perfect Storm because she survived being struck by lightning, and also the best time to look for fossils on the beach is after a storm. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah. And all proceeds from that song is going to go to Marianning Rocks. So lots of progress being made on this statue. The unexpected upside of coronavirus is a song about Mary Anning coming out. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> and some funding for the statue too, which is great. Mm -hmm. In Thailand, there's a restaurant filling up on empty seats with dinosaurs to encourage social distancing, speaking of the <laughs> pandemic. So they're just filling all the seats that are closer than six feet with dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. The dinosaurs, they're pretty cute. They kind of look like these green cartoon dragons wearing crowns. <laughs> I don't know where they got the design from, but I like it. Is it, are they like cardboard cutout kind of things, I'm guessing? I think they're made of plastic, but they do look cardboardy for some reason. Yeah. Because it'd be expensive if you fill them all with stuffed animals or something. Mm -hmm. And maybe, yeah, plastic might be better too, because if you want to decontaminate them mm -hmm. and have a cleaning process, cardboard isn't going to work for that. <laughs> <laughs> So next, Bad Idea, which is a company that publishes comics, is publishing Tankers as one of their launch titles, and that is a sci-fi series dinosaur satire. Hmm. And so the hook is, quote, with less than a decade of fossil fuel left, there's only one thing for big oil to do, create a time machine to change the course of history and make sure the dinosaurs lived longer in the first place, end quote. That is wrong in so many ways. Yes. So <laughs> as you can imagine, things go awry. The soldiers, they're from the company Greenleaf Oil, they go back to the Cretaceous and they save the dinosaurs from the asteroid. But then when they go home, they find that there's really evolved dinosaurs in the present and for some reason they're holding a grudge. Oh, they've got the dinosauroid hominid type creatures? I don't know if they're that far. Okay. <laughs> into it. I think they might still look like dinosaurs. But it's described as, quote, a Saturday morning cartoon that's run irresponsibly over budget. The weird thing about that to me is it's called green leaf oil, which is sort of accurate because oil is mostly made out of marine stuff like algae and then also some fossil fuels like coal is presumably made of forests, but fossil fuels are not made out of dinosaurs. Right. I think it's meant to be pretty tongue in cheek. So the whole premise doesn't make sense. Well, the whole idea is... <laughs> bringing dinosaurs back somehow. Yeah, they had to come up with what industry would want to bring dinosaurs back, and that was the one that they went with. Yeah. I think people like us would be the group that want dinosaurs back the most, more so than fossil companies, people that want to see the dinosaurs. 
Maybe. It's hard to say. It's hard to monetize that, I guess, though. Mm. Either way, it looks like a fun series. It comes out in April. It'd be interesting to see how they project the dinosaur evolution over the last 60 million years, what they come up with. Oh, true. In other dinosaur media, Antonio Maria da Silva of AMDS Films made a two-hour mashup movie featuring Hollywood action stars and dinosaurs. And after I read the description, I thought, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, but I didn't realize mashup movies were kind of their own genre. (laughs) So it's called Dinosaur Hunters. The mashup is about people who specialize in hunting dinosaurs. And stars of the mashup include Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage, and many more, as well as dinosaurs from Jurassic Park and other dinosaur movies. So the visuals have come in from 49 movies, and it sounds really interesting, especially because it's basically a feature-length film amount of time. So it's like a remixed song, but they're mixing in like action movies and dinosaur movies? Mm Mm-hmm. So you'll have like Arnold Schwarzenegger as a Terminator shooting at a robot, but then they'll edit it so it looks like he's shooting at like Indominus Rex or something. Something like that. I don't know the details. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and they've made their own storyline out of it. I've done that with a trailer before where you like mix in different stuff and make it look like all like something completely different is happening. Like you can make a happy movie look like a horror movie with Mm -hmm. the right music and the right cuts. But I've never seen a full movie done like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's mostly trailer mashups, but yeah, (laughs) it's interesting. And you can watch it online. Quick spoiler alert. The next item is about Jurassic World Dominion and potentially where the ending of it is headed. Thanks to Tarkia Tamer who shared this one with us through our Discord. So Frank Marshall, producer of Jurassic World Dominion, said that Dominion will not be the end of the Jurassic Park franchise. He said, quote, it's the start of a new era and that, quote, the dinosaurs are now on the mainland amongst us and they will be for quite some time, I hope. Yeah, so it's still pretty vague, but I'm glad it's not the end. Yeah, I mean, me too, because Jurassic Park inspires a lot of budding paleontologists. So if the franchise's end, there might be less people interested in dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But considering Jurassic Park, I think, was the first ever billion-dollar movie, it seems unlikely they would let that cash cow go away just for I don't know what reason. True. There's probably so many cool ideas and ways you can spin off. Yeah, I like the idea of spinoffs. We haven't really had any spinoffs. They've all been continuous in time, right? It's mm-hmm. always been one after the other, all six of them. Right. But then you've got things like Camp Cretaceous on Netflix. That yeah. just, it's kind of in that time frame, but it's a completely different set of characters. Yeah. I'd love to see more expanded on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, even Battle at Big Rock, those different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this would be, and even if dinosaurs do end up all over the US, that would be really ripe spinoff material because then you can just have any kind of dinosaur interacting with any kind of group of people and there's unlimited potential there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now into our dinosaur of the day, Zephyrosaurus, which was a request from Ewan's Biz via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Zephyrosaurus was an ornithischian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Montana in the U.S. in the Cloverleaf formations where it was found. It was estimated to be 5.9 feet, 1.8 meters long, so it was small and probably fast. It was bipedal and it was an herbivore and it had a beak as well as bosses on its cheeks like these large knobs. Zephyrosaurus had four toes and five fingers and it may have burrowed like we talked about in the new segment, like Arictodromeus and Orodromeus and now Changmianlia. The type species is Zephyrosaurus shafi. It was named in 1980 by Hans Dieter Seuss, and the genus name means westward wind lizard. Charles R. Schaff had found the fossils, so that's how it got the species name. A partial skull and postcranial skeleton was found, and that included jaw fragments, the brain case, vertebrae, and parts of the rib. And it may be closely related to Orodromaeus, and that's based on both of them having those bosses or large knobs on their cheeks. Reminds me of Cetacosaurus, which was also around at the same time, so that's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Even though they're in very different groups. Some of the dinosaur art, when I was looking this up, looked kind of, to me, like a kangaroo. (laughs) The way they're showing it jumping in midair. Oh, interesting. But anyway, more individuals were found in 2003 by Martha Cutter. There were at least seven individuals. Wow. And it was reported in an abstract for SVP. And then dinosaur tracks found in 2004 in Maryland and Virginia in the Patuxent Formation named Hypsiloichnus marylandicus. It's a trace fossil, so. And that means trace of a Hypsilophodon from Maryland. And those are thought to be from a dinosaur either similar to Zephyrosaurus or maybe even Zephyrosaurus itself. Those tracks were found by Ray Stanford, who first saw them in 2001. And these tracks show the dinosaur on all fours, actually, with a smaller front foot or hand 
in front of the larger hind foot. But because they think it's bipedal, maybe it was resting or eating or drinking. Makes sense. Crouching down. Mm -hmm. Or it could just be not from Zephyrosaurus. (laughs) It's another option. Yes, true. And as promised, our fun fact is going to go into some other burrowing dinosaurs. So like we mentioned, Zephyrosaurus and Changmyenia and Erictodromius and some others have been proposed to be burrowing dinosaurs. But there are actually quite a few birds which burrow. I didn't find these last week when I was talking about animals that bury things. These almost certainly don't bury anything, but they do burrow for their own purposes. The most obvious one you'll probably come across is the burrowing owl. Is burrowing right in the name. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if they ever actually burrow. So <laughs> it seems that they generally inhabit existing burrows. Mm. Leave the work up to someone else. Yeah, it's like a burrow dwelling owl more than a burrowing owl. The most interesting thing about the burrowing owl is the same behavior of inhabiting other animals' burrows is done by rattlesnakes. And burrowing owls will mimic rattlesnakes when threatened. Hmm. So they'll hide in the burrow and then they'll make rattling and hissing noises like a mockingbird or something. That's smart. To scare things away. Yeah, it's fascinating. Burrowing owls also look really weird because they're owls, but they have really long legs because they live in grasslands. So that way they can see up over the grassland. And they're pretty good runners. Apparently, they prefer to hunt on foot. So they're owls that run around in the grass (laughs) hunting insects and small mammals and things. And since there aren't any trees to perch in to look for animals down on the ground, it kind of suits their behavior. And it reminded me of Changmyenia and Zephyrosaurus with those longer legs and not hunting underground. They kind of live in the burrow and then they pop out when they're going to hunt, run around, and then they go back into the burrow. Pretty fascinating creature. Another burrowing bird that actually does do some burrowing is called a motmot, and they're tropical forest birds. Apparently, they can eat poison dart frogs, which is pretty cool. There's also bee eaters, and they do, in fact, eat bees and wasps will live in burrows. There's kingfishers, which eat fish as well as insects, even though they're not called king insect eaters. Kingfishers are pretty adaptable. They also sometimes use arboreal termite nests as a nest for themselves, dig into a termite nest and use that to live in. One giant kingfisher made a nest that was at least 28 feet long, so they're pretty capable burrowers, but apparently they've been studied a little bit, and they'll burrow not as deep if the sand or dirt is hard to dig into, so it depends on what the substrate's like, and sometimes if the substrate is difficult enough to burrow into, they'll injure themselves, because they kind of ram into it a little bit to start the burrow going, and they can injure themselves just ramming into something hard when I guess they're not expecting it to be so hard or they're desperate to get the burrow started. I'm not sure. It's kind of weird. A bird that a lot of people are familiar with, but we probably don't realize that it burrows, are puffins. Hmm. They sometimes live in rock crevices, but they're just as likely to dig into dirt for a burrow if there isn't a rock crevice available. There's also the little penguin, which is a species. (laughs) It's not just a description of a penguin. It's the type of penguin we saw in Melbourne when we were there. They were little. And they lived in burrows. I didn't realize it at the time, but they were living in little burrows on the cliff face. Remember we saw the little chicks Mm -hmm. in the one? So yeah, they also will go into rock crevices if they can, but if there isn't one, they'll dig straight into dirt and live in those burrows. I noticed there's a pretty big difference in preference between how birds 
choose their burrows versus how some mammals do, it seems like birds tend to prefer more vertical entrances than digging straight down. So most of them that make their own burrow, at least other than that burrowing owl, they're doing them in cliffs or in like banks of rivers and things like that. Whereas when we think about burrowing animals, usually you're thinking about like badgers. Meerkats. Yeah, meerkats, snakes, things like that, that kind of dig straight down into the ground or like bunnies, like Bugs Bunny <laughs> digging straight down. But they tend to go into the edge, which I wonder if it's because since they can fly, that's more available to them. Could be safer too. Yeah, and it seems like it's less likely to fill with water and stuff like that. Actually, now that I think about it, it seems like a better option <laughs> than digging straight down, I guess, if you can do it. But it doesn't make them invulnerable. Bird burrows have been seen being raided by rodents as well as snakes. So that might be why it's a less popular option than building nests up in trees and things like that where you're a little less vulnerable. And in addition, in order to live in a burrow, you have to be living in a place that has the right kind of sediment to live in. Whereas if you build a nest, you can spread out potentially a little more. Although I suppose you have to be in an area where you can collect the right nest materials. So maybe that's not true. While digging into this, no pun intended, <laughs> burrowing <laughs> knowledge about birds, I ran into quite a few other interesting burrowers that aren't birds, but I think they're interesting. So the largest burrowing animal is generally considered to be the wombat. We saw a couple of those when we were in Australia. They are large. They are very large. I think they're like 70 pounds or so. Um, Interesting marsupials look like a giant rodent. But in my opinion, there is a larger burrower, which is the polar bear, mm. quite a bit larger than a wombat. They make maternity dens, they're called. Often they're in snow. That's what I, the only way I've seen it in nature documentaries. But they'll also do it in dirt. If they're on land, they'll just dig their maternity burrow into the dirt, or they'll use a cave if that's available. Like a lot of animals, they'll use whatever's easiest. So like I was saying with birds using rock crevices, Polar bears will use a rock crevice, a much larger rock crevice, but they will if it's available. And their burrows are so huge, it, it doesn't even, to my eye, look like a burrow. It's just like a bear-sized hole in the ground. So if I guess if you're in polar bear territory, be wary of large holes in the ground because there might be a polar bear living in it. The biggest underground colonies of vertebrates come from prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are a type of ground squirrel which I hadn't realized before, but if you look at a picture of one, it does look like a big squirrel without the fluffiness on the tail. They live in what are called towns, and there was a 5,500-acre or about nine-square-mile town in Kansas. Wow. Yeah, they can get huge because I think prairie dogs multiply kind of like people do. We just we have our families, we have our little houses, and then we spread out all over the world. Prairie dogs have the same sort of style. They'll make a burrow with their family, and then it'll just expand and expand and expand with other little families all around them, which I guess is probably why they call them towns. But unfortunately for prairie dogs, they're almost always exterminated because they're seen as a pest that consumes all the grass that we want available for cattle. And in most of the U.S., it's illegal to have prairie dogs on your land, basically. And states that have a lot of prairie dogs have rules that are like, if there are prairie dogs on your property, we're going to come out and exterminate them and then send you the bill for the extermination. Wow. Because they spread out and make these huge colonies and then it's a negative externality on your neighbors where now they have prairie dogs on their land and it impacts their property value. At least that's how it's historically been seen. A plague of prairie dogs. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's less 
an invasive species because they were the original inhabitants of the area. And apparently they help with reducing soil erosion because when it rains, the prairie dogs actually make these drainage holes that go down to the water table and it helps with soil erosion and things like that. So some people want to have prairie dogs around and then just deal with the fact that they can't have as many cattle or they're not interested in cattle. But most of the laws on the books are still that the state can just come out and exterminate all the prairie dogs on your land. I found this interesting article about that 5,500 acre one in Kansas. The owner of the land had cattle and wanted to keep them, but eventually they ended up just coming out and killing all the prairie dogs, which was a bummer for him and the prairie dogs. If you're not familiar with prairie dogs, to me, they look like massive herbivorous meerkat colonies. Because <laughs> like I said, they mostly eat grass, but sometimes insects. And predators like ferrets and weasels, as well as those burrowing owls, benefit from prairie dog towns being around because they either live in their burrows or they hunt the prairie dogs actively. And the black-footed ferret is endangered because of the lack of prairie dogs to eat. You can feel the upcoming battles between people that care about the black-footed ferret versus people that care about getting the maximum use of land for their cattle. So it's kind of an ongoing debate that's happening in the U.S. Lastly, I just want to point out, if you see a burrow, you might be able to identify the maker by a few details. The size of the burrow is a really good detail. Obviously, a snake burrow versus a polar bear burrow is going to give you an idea about what kind of animal could be in it. Unless it's one of those burrowing owls, then it could be a snake hole or an owl hole. Or a prairie dog hole. Mm. You can also get a clue by the claw marks in the burrow itself. Prairie dogs leave like their claw marks in the burrow. So you can see like, oh, that's a prairie dog print right in the burrow. But then again, this doesn't account for if something else has taken over that burrow, only who originally made the burrow. You might also be able to find gnaw marks on plants nearby the burrows. Sometimes they'll live right by things they like to chew on. And the last detail is whether there's a mound around the hole and the shape of that mound. So some animals leave fan-shaped mounds, some of them leave round mounds, and then the height and steepness of that mound can also give you some clues about what kind of animal it is. Do we know enough about dinosaur burrows to know which types made what kinds of mounds? I don't think so, because I think we just have the cast of the burrow. We don't have like the outside of the burrow preserved. Mm, but maybe someday. Maybe. And it made me think too, maybe we'll be able to see what their claw marks looked like if they preserve in the edges. You know, if you had a really amazing preservation of that natural cast of a burrow, that'd be cool. That would be. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes of I Know Dino. And join our community. Learn more about SVP and chat with us on Discord, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.